From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Ellis Avery, and I live in New York City, where I teach creative writing at Columbia. I'm the author of two books, The Smoke Week, a nonfiction book about life in New York right after September 11th, and The Tea House Fire, which is set in the tea ceremony world of 19th century Kyoto. The Tea House Fire just came out recently, and this past year won two awards and is being translated into six languages. The Tea House Fire is the result of five years of tea ceremony study here in the States and in Kyoto. One question that confronted me early on in my studies was how come all of the famous tea ceremony people in history were men, but all my fellow tea students were women? Tea used to be a samurai warrior's art. Now it's a women's art. What happened? I did some research and discovered that there was a real woman from the most important tea ceremony family in Kyoto who single-handedly changed the fate of the art in the 1880s by getting tea into the curriculum of the newly founded girls' schools. Her name was Yukako, and the tea house fire is Yukako's story from the point of view of Aurelia, an American girl whom Yukako takes under her wing. I'm going to start on the very first page and in 1866. When I was nine, in the city now called Kyoto, I changed my fate. I walked into the shrine through the red arch and struck the bell. I bowed twice. I clapped twice. I whispered to the foreign goddess and bowed again. And then I heard the shouts and the fire. What I asked for? Any life but this one. I was named Aurelia for my grandmother, Aurelie Caillard, who worked in Paris as a laundress. She had two children, my uncle Charles and my mother, Claire. My uncle was clever with books and won scholarships to Jesuit schools where they puffed him up, my mother said, with dreams of power and glory in faraway lands. When he was twenty, the order transferred him to New York to shuttle between Irish and Italian immigrants downtown, using the office of school principal as a base from which to consolidate the Catholic vote. The post was less than he had hoped for. He petitioned regularly for transfer. My mother stayed in Paris, working as a maid in a convent. Uncle Charles said she took up with a wicked man, but, I admit my bias, I think someone at the church forced himself on her. She was fourteen. My grandmother offered passage money to New York and closed her door. In 1856, when my mother arrived on Mott Street to wash her brother's floors, my uncle pronounced her a young widow and gave her dead husband, and me, the surname Bernard. Early that May, she gave birth to me. Aurelia, my Uncle Charles insisted, not Aurelie, an American name. Uncle Charles's request is finally answered, and he is sent to Japan to convert the heathens. He brings Aurelia with him as a servant, since her mother is too sick to travel, and in fact dies before she can join them. En route, Aurelia be begins learning the Japanese language, and her first week in Japan, before she gets to Kyoto, she begins learning about how things are done in Japan, like taking off your shoes before you go into a building, or the way that fashionable ladies shave their eyebrows. Here, I'm beginning in the middle of a scene that takes place on Aurelia's first night in Kyoto, just after her Uncle Charles has broken her trust. I did not cry out when I fell, because I did not want him to comfort me. I stood up and smoothed my dress and looked at him, flung back in his chair. His eyelids fluttered, his round peach face flushed ripe, veins jumped in his forehead. The thought struck me. I did not like my Uncle Charles. 
I took my doll by the arm and I walked downstairs. The last dregs of evening lit my uncle's big boots, splayed across the floor where he'd tossed them, and my small ones, too, tucked together in a corner. I sat on the step by the entrance and listened. Outside, from all directions, I heard the slow clop of wooden sandals. Nearby, I heard the pop of wood burning in the brazier. Upstairs, I heard nothing. Was he gathering himself to spring at me? I quietly put on one of my boots and laced it. A loud sound scissored down from his room. I grabbed my other boot. It was a snore. I did not like him. I laced my boot, took my doll, and walked outside. It was so simple. I glanced back through the lattice at Uncle Charles's sprawled boots and walked into the dusk, one foot in front of the other. I saw the curved tip of the red shrine gate rising beyond a house outside the street. I walked toward it and saw the shrine glittering with candles. Lights and flowers surrounded a golden statue of a woman with a dot on her forehead. She was not God, but where was God? I would pray to her, I decided. I had no coin, but I could leave my doll. I walked through the gate and tugged the bell pull. I bowed, I clapped, I made my awful wish. I wasn't sure what to do next. I sat where I had stood, at the foot of the golden goddess, under the bell rope, watching people, young and old, stroll by in their noisy clogs. One walked with a lantern in the dimming evening, a pretty globe of paper with a candle inside, dangling at the end of a stick. As the night deepened, more lanterns appeared, passing calmly to and fro, clop, clop, clop. I was transfixed by the lights. I wanted to join not any lamplit person in particular, but the whole street, the whole net of fairy lights bobbing in the dark. Then suddenly the lamps stopped moving, and then they all surged in the same direction. The steady tap of wooden shoes became a hailstorm, and then the shouting started, and I smelled fire. Uncle Charles had left wood-burning untended in a charcoal brazier in a paper house. Could the blaze have started somewhere else? Perhaps. Two men in billowing priestly robes appeared from behind the shrine and swept the calm goddess off into the river of frightened people. She glinted gold and vanished. I crept forward in the opposite direction in time to see, by the light of the conflagration, our new gray house, intact but glowing like a paper lantern, hollowed out by flame. As I backed away, the house trembled, and then it roared, as the tile roof caved in and brought the second floor heaving to the ground. Then fire fanned down the block, and I began to run. I do not know if Uncle Charles woke and wriggled through a window or staggered down the kitchen alley. Sixty-three years have passed since that night. I think not. The fire was a loud animal. It sucked the breath out of me. I groped and staggered, forward, away, through the screams and the groaning buildings. Men called for water to save their homes. Mother, mother, cried the thin voice of a child. A horse-drawn cart pushed past me, and I thought I could have climbed up on that. I was sure I had missed my chance, but then one of the horses spooked, shrieking on its hind legs, and the driver beat him about the head with wet rags to stop the falling sparks. Now, I whispered, I touched my St. Clair medal for courage and ran toward the horses, shimmied into the cart, and flattened myself against a load of silk. As we pulled away, I bit my lip. Had that child found its mother? When we had cleared the smoke and the press of terrified people, I scrambled out again and ran, ran into the dark. I ran and then I walked unseeing. My lungs felt charred. Occasional breaths of incense burst through my sobs, so perhaps I passed temples. I walked and walked until my breath sanded my throat. 
I was so thirsty. Beyond a dainty bamboo fence, I saw a patch of stone where the moon shone wetly. I climbed the fence. No water. Beyond it, I saw a rough stone pillar. Its worn, smooth top formed a cup holding water. Oh. I leaned into it and drank like an animal. When I wiped my mouth, mucus clung to my wrist from crying. I was in a garden of moss and rock. I saw a tiny wooden house with a square hole in the side, like a door for a baby. A rough stone formed a step in front of the square entrance. I climbed up on it and looked inside. Hello? Nothing. I crawled in. I felt woven straw under my hands, a Japanese floor, so I untied my boots and kicked them behind me into the stone garden. This is how, smelling of fire, snot drying on my face, I first came to the tea house by Xi'an. I lay flat on the floor and slept. When I sat up in the dark, the fire felt as small and remote to me as a story. I was real. This house was real, all silvery wood and moonlight, the most beautiful place I had ever seen. The room stood small and austere, two pale tatami rectangles with a wide, dark, polished floorboard between them. In the heart of the room, I saw a gap in the floorboard, a perfectly square hole like the door I had crawled through but smaller. The moon crept in through scattered windows, turned the straw floor white, made the floorboard gleam, but left a perfect square of night untouched at the center. It frightened me. I looked away. In the corner beside me, a tiny step up from the tatami floor, I saw an alcove, three feet wide by some two feet deep. The brightest splash of moon fell on the alcove floor a beautiful piece of wood, brown-black, with a thread of white running across it like a vein of bright marble. The room was a mirror for the moon. It seemed to hold its breath. All it lacked was its fairy-tale inhabitant, the spirit princess for whom the little hole I had crawled through was a wide gate, for whom seven feet by six was palace enough. Maybe she lived deep under the earth and wafted in like smoke through the dark square in the floor. Would she be warm enough in here? I lay down, cold, and drew my knees to my chin. Someone was walking outside. It was strange to hear a footstep here without the wooden clop of sandals, but I was not mistaken. Shuff, 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 as if walking barefoot, a light, knowing step, quick. The walker paused as if startled outside the house where I lay. A female voice whispered a word in Japanese. Older brother? I heard a long pause and then a head appeared in the square doorway. I shut my eyes, breathed deep sleeping breaths. A little foreigner, said the voice. I looked again. The head was gone. A large object had appeared in its place. It was dark, a creature, a stiff, dead dog, and then I made it out. It was a Japanese pillow, a wooden box topped with a cloth pad. A thin cloth followed the pillow, and then I heard someone pick up my shoes, all in one resolute motion, and set them down on the cloth inside the room. Then a back, a grown woman's back, appeared in the doorway, shoulders moving. She was peeling off a pair of socks. I saw her arm reach in and set them on the cloth with my shoes. And then the woman herself crawled in through the little door, straightened, and loomed over me. Scared, I closed my eyes again. Koneko, she said under her breath. A word I knew, less endearing than it sounds in English. Cats and kittens are dirty in Japanese, and by definition stray, only tolerated if they earn their keep. And yet she paused over me, then crouched. I felt her face near mine. A damp feather of her hair touched my arm. I tried desperately not to change my breathing. Why didn't she scream at me? 
and what kind of person, clearly not poor, went barefoot. I heard a slow, distant talk, talk, a night watchman pacing with his wooden clapper. I figured it out. The woman was hiding, too. Older brother, she'd said. Where was he? I opened my eyes. A stark white face was looking straight at me, a monster with no eyebrows. I flinched. Boo, she said. A Japanese sound. Ba. I cowered and froze up, gasping. Her ghost face eased into a faint smile, and I uncurled and simply stared back at her, my heart loud in my throat. I saw a young woman, perhaps sixteen to my almost ten, with long alert eyes, a narrow nose, a long face washed clean, longer for the lack of eyebrows. She was like the moon, like the dark wood shot with white. Her long, drying hair was a silk river. Her eyes were lights. I shivered, from the cold, and because she was so beautiful. Her beautiful nostrils flared. Her beautiful face rippled with distaste. Ksai, she said. You smell bad. I hid my face in my hands, ashamed. She gave a tiny, dry seed of a laugh and turned away from me. I opened my eyes and watched her. She wore two robes, a dark one over a light one. She stood as if dispensing with an interruption and took off her outer robe. She lay down on her side, facing away, on the pale tatami between me and the hole in the floor, settling her pillow under her neck. She sighed, and again I heard a hint of laughter. And then she spread her kimono so that it covered us both. My eyes felt bald. I opened them so wide, with shock, with gratitude. Foreigner, little cat, you smell bad. Even my mother chased stray cats off the roof with a broom. She didn't spread her clothing over them to keep them warm. My mother was dead in New York. No, my mother was alive. She was safe and far from fever. A spirit princess, she had vanished down a square hole in the floor under her bed and left a false body behind. I reached for my St. Clair medal. I couldn't think. The woman's hair had touched my arm. The woman's hand, the back of her hand, had flickered across my side when she shook her robe smooth over us. Who had touched me since I left home? Only Uncle Charles. I couldn't think about that either. The cotton of the woman's kimono lay across my cheek. It smelled of old incense, dark and sweet. I watched her breathe. Her narrow back was a tall ship lifting gently on the waves. She was a moon princess. She was a bright vein in dark wood. I slept. In the gray dawn, the woman sat beside me and pointed to her nose, the way Americans point to their hearts to talk about themselves. You, she said. Was she speaking English? I am you. You are you. She picked up my hand and took my index finger. They call it the person-pointing finger, and pointed it at my nose. Me, I said, not grasping the game. You, me, you, I don't understand. Aurelia? Aurelia, she repeated. Aurelia, I agreed. Aurelia, she said dubiously, as if I'd told her my name was Road Toll or Wet Mop. Her face cleared, and she lifted my hand toward me again, gently. Uruko, she said softly, pleased with herself. Miss Uruko. So it was a name, then. Uruko. A name stressed like Erica or Jericho. This morning it was mine. I was the last thing she'd imagined finding here, her face told me, as she stared at my dress, my knitted socks, my necklace. What had she come here for last night, barefoot and in secret? Older brother? I asked, remembering. 
She looked at me for a moment, then realized I had tried to say a Japanese word, then understood what I'd said. Her eyes widened soberly. She said something, and like her, I had to think about it for a few seconds. Dead. There was so much I hadn't learned, but I remembered a word from my grammar. Sad, I said. Sad, she repeated. She looked down and away. To cheer her up, I touched my nose for her again. Uriko, I said. Her face bloomed. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. KQED.